welcome to Canucks Talk. I'm your host, Thomas Drance, flying solo today, but we've got a great show for you. Coming up, we'll have the crossover with Donnie and Dolly. Uh, that'll start in about five minutes. At, w- at 12.30, we're going to do the whiteboard. At 1 p.m., we've got Jason Bukula, your friend and mine. We'll talk prospects. We'll talk Canucks' recent form. We'll get into everything with Books, And then, very excited about this, at 1.30, we're going to talk to Sarah Nurse, star forward with the PWHL Toronto team. Uh, she recently played in the historic battle on Bay Street, uh, the, the highest attendance for a game in women's hockey. Sarah Nurse, Canadian Olympic gold medalist. We're going to talk to her about an awesome new initiative she's got going called Nursey Nights to Grow the Women's Game. Thrilled thrilled to spend some time in conversation later in the show with Sarah Nurse. Let's play the Bills, and then we'll get to Donnie and Dolly. Of course, Canucks Talk is brought to you by our good friends, the absolute best folks at Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. Of course, I'm coming to you live all alone from the Kintec studio. Kintec, that's Canada's favorite uh, orthotics provider powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet, what are you waiting for? Um, Of course, when I fly solo, I always need your help. I need your input. I need your interaction in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line. Dunbar Lumber with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver. You can also visit them online at DunbarLumber.com. All right. The Canucks have lost three in a row. They played really well last night, though. Genuinely, I think think you're fibbing yourself if you're going to say something like they outplayed the Avalanche. I don't think that's accurate. The Avs were the better team, narrowly. But the Canucks played well enough that on most nights, you probably earned the point. They played well enough that the difference in the game wasn't that the Avs throttled them it was one bounce one bounce off Connor Garland's stick finds the back of the net the Canucks couldn't get their own bounce and that was the game bringing them in to chat about it with Jamie's photo apparently being part of the image it's my good friends at Donnie and Dolly Donnie and Dolly (laughs) gentlemen Good morning, or afternoon, excuse me, you hear us? How's it going? Can you hear me? Oh, it's better. Dissecting okay, uh, what the Canucks are up to. Yes, yeah. can you hear us? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> are we live? We're live. Good, good start. <laughs> Killing it. I, I'm, I'm untethered without my, without my guy, Jamie Dodd. Gentlemen, there's a lot yep. to unpack from last night. I want to start with the game. We'll we'll move on to our steep banes, and then we'll get into what it means and what comes next for the Canucks. So let's begin with the game itself. Um, Classic sports talk radio thing. Out of 10, where's your level of concern for this team, given that they've just dropped three in a row for the first time this season? Everybody that we've had on, and I think uh, when I hear Rick talk talk last night, this is in line with – with this, that five on five, and you heard what JT Miller had to say mm. even after the Minnesota game, that 
they're I'm not going to say fine with things because they've lost three games in a row, but I don't think they're as concerned the Canucks as everybody else is. Look, you you got to put up two points. Uh, I get that, but I I would agree. Even that Minnesota game it was so weird as a throwaway game. Yeah. Five on five, even last night, uh, I'm okay with it. Three three game losing streaks are going to happen. This one just happens to happen in mid February, where everybody gets a little more a little bit more concerned. What team doesn't go through this, uh, Thomas? Uh, after the Canucks won in Boston, the Bruins lost four straight. Mm-hmm. I think the Avalanche lost four straight going into last night. Yep. Every single team over the course of a season is going to have ups and downs, peaks and valleys. My biggest concern right now is the power play. I mm. mean, it's a one-goal game with six minutes left last night, and that power play did nothing. Like, um, we were talking about it this during the show. Uh, they're one for 24 with the man advantage. And, you know, two shots in four minutes on the power play last night. And the one late in the third really hurts. You're down by a goal. you got this golden opportunity. I don't think they had a shot on that, on that power play. You've got so much skill out there. You've got so many. you got guys in the top ten scoring. And this power play right now is they're not getting shots through. They're not getting in on the inside, Thomas. And this power play needs some help ASAP. The, yeah, four minutes of work for the Canucks power play, five shot attempts, two shots on goal. Uh, Since the All-Star break, gentlemen, it's not even just that the power play is not scoring, it's surrendering goals. The Canucks power play in nine games since the All-Star break, three goals for, three goals against, zero. That's like, that's net zero from the power play. I think you saw a template last night, too, of like why this team is going to need their power play to be a difference maker in a tight checking game, which, which that surely was. Yeah, and I, you know, and you tell me, Thomas, when you watch this team now on the power play, and look, the talent's there. I think mm-hmm. we can all uh, agree on that. When you watch this team on the power play, does there seem to be as much movement as and creativity as there was earlier on? I don't think there is. And you know, I it just seems like such a simple thing. You'd, you'd think they'd try to get back to that. That's that's what I would be uh, looking for if I was them. But that that's a good stat about the the shorthanded goals against. That's that's not great. Um, I suggested earlier on, and I know this is this is you know way uh, out there, but I always loved when the Boston Bruins, uh, when they had Zidane Chara, mm. when they needed when their power play wasn't going well, just to wake everybody up, they put him in front of the net. Yeah, and maybe it's I, again. I know this is way out there. I know it's a bit old school. <laughs> put, Put Zadorov or put Myers out there. Put Dakota Joshua out there in front of the net. That big body screening the goaltender. Just something different to mix things up, to wake everybody up. I know it's a short-term solution. I I, I get that. But just, just, just something. Maybe that gets everybody uh, going. Thomas, maybe get Tim Kerr out of uh, retirement. You, you, that's all he talked about today was Tim Kerr. <laughs> Thomas, do you not know Tim Kerr? No, Tim Kerr is before my like, time. Oh my god! Oh my! How old are you? What? What? <laughs> yeah, you, you don't know Tim me? Kerr? Uh, no, I I never saw him play. The, I can't are like twenty one. Dude, dude, guy's sixty four. He retired in nineteen ninety three when I was five years old. I know, but he was Seems the power like play. He was the power play king of all time, Tim Kerr. Uh, if, if he'd you come, know? if he'd been the I know power the rest play, of your radio station is all twenty one years old. But come on, Tom. <laughs> if he'd played, if he'd been the power play king, like two years later. You know what I mean? I would have known who he was, but Donnie, five, yeah. five years Donnie, old, I wasn't a big enough hockey fan. Well, they compare. 
big redheaded player oh, from the Flyers, and then Flyers. to the Rangers, fifty goal scorer. Yep. You know, you know, Lindros was there. There was a, a lot. Yep. Well, even before Lindros, yeah, yeah. before Lindros, but. Uh, they compared him to Phil Esposito. Hmm. Do you remember Phil Esposito? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I shouldn't assume you know who Phil <laughs> no, Esposito is. Phil Esposito is a big enough in character. Slot, in, it, in, yeah. in hockey history it, that I know Immovable in the slot? Yep. Yeah, okay. yeah, he's done other things other than play. But immovable in the slot, had hands. Oh, he, uh, deflections. All his goals were deflections. He was, he was a merchant. What do the kids call it? A merchant on the power play. A now. power what? play merchant? Uh, that's what the kids call it. That's what the one yeah, spinning chicklets call guy calls it, Rick. I don't um, know one yeah. kid, and I've got three no, of them that, says th- that. These guys call it a merchant. But anyways, Tim Kerr, there's <laughs> the, the update, uh, uh, Thomas. <laughs> I love Thomas, the idea. were you born in like 2000? I was born in 1997. Close. I like the idea that Rick's like walking into a BCL. What? What? Yeah. what? I like the idea that you're like walking into a BCL, well, Rick. And well, 87. I was born in 1987. Yeah. But I like the idea that Rick's walking oh, into the BCL and there's some there's some kids outside of the out of the BCL trying to trying to get him to buy them liquor, and they're like, <laughs> "Come on, what are you, a power play merchant?" And he's like, "All the kids are saying that." <laughs> can we can we talk some Archdeep yeah. Baines? Anyways, Tim Kerr asked me to buy him something at one point. <laughs> what number was Tim Kerr done? 12. 24? 12, 12, 12, 12, 12, yeah, 12. Good player, good player Ooh, back boy. in the day. Archdeep Baines, I need to get your reaction to it. It would have been a great story if he hadn't performed so well. But he really did perform well. Rick, what, what was your reaction to Arshdeep Bain's first NHL game? What I really liked is that uh, Bain started uh, the game on a line with Bluger and Garland. Tockett showed a lot of confidence in him, but he stayed on that line. Thomas, you know how many guys get called up, and by the second period, they're on the fourth line? Mm. You know, they get dropped. This kid stayed on that line the entire game. And remember, he had no practice. Like, he never got practice with Bluger and Garland. He just he just got thrown into the wolves, as they say. Um, thought he was physical. He didn't get rattled with the big moment. Had some good plays offensively. Set up Bluger twice. Work ethic was strong. Uh, but how about giving some credit to the Abbotsford coaches? You know, mm. part of their, their job is to prepare these kids to play in the National Hockey League. And the fact that he didn't seem rattled by the moment, that tells me he's, he's pretty good coaching down in Abbotsford. So I, I thought it was a positive yeah. night for him for sure. Yeah, uh, close to four minutes in the third period and getting more ice time than his, his line mate, uh, Connor Garland, Mikheyev, uh, Amon, that was impressive. PDG, yeah. but and, and having his father in attendance, uh, yeah. uh, Cull Deep was just so special yep. as part of the Canucks uh, mentors uh, trip. But Thomas, take, you know, the, the if, if you can his South Asian heritage out of the uh, out of the equation for just a second here. Just it would be a great story, e- even if he wasn't of that heritage. In that he wasn't drafted yep. into the Western Hockey League, he wasn't part of oh. the ba- Bantam draft. Was passed over there. He was passed over in the NHL draft. Um, uh, you know, he, uh, yes, he led the Western Hockey League in points. But hey, you remember the story? He was twenty years old at the time. Oh, oh he's yeah. dominating kids, big deal. But yeah, there just seemed to be seems to be all these obstacles in front of him and he's knocked them all down and that was just a really special day and like Rick said how many times have we seen players you know the coach will throw them some breadcrumbs yeah start them uh, put them in the starting lineup 
and then they go downhill from there. Downhill. And that, that wasn't the case uh, last night. And he had he, that opportunity on the two-on-one. He probably should have shot there. Yep. You know, he's, he's two-on-one with Brock Besser, Canucks' leading goal scorer. You, you knew he was going to try to pass. He, but he had the wherewithal to have things mess up there and still get the tip the shot on goal. So there, there was a whole, a whole lot there. And the other thing, as I ramble on here, and I apologize for that, but there's nothing wrong with inner competition. Yep. And to have him come up and push some guys, and Lafferty, Lafferty was up in the box last night. Uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. The good teams have push from within, have inner competition. It was great. And Tom, uh, Thomas, let me get this in. Uh, Canucks are going to need Baines and and others from Abbotsford to play next year because they cannot re-sign all their UFAs. Yeah. They are going to need so at least two to three kids to to crack that lineup next year. And if he can do it this year, that'll set him up nicely for next year and the next guy that needs to do what he's doing is, is Pod Colson. Mm-hmm. He's got to come up uh, mm-hmm. Thomas I think and he's got to be that guy. If Pod Colson and Baines can be in the Vancouver lineup next year on opening night that'll be a big thing for them. Be a huge help. Yeah I was impressed with the defensive details on, on this young gentleman's game given that it was his NHL debut uh, you could see the work rate. He seems to understand Rick Tockett hockey right from the jump uh, that's a that's a good sign for him maybe continuing to get some opportunities here. And, and you're right. That's a, a lot of credit should go to Ryan Johnson, Jeremy Colleton, and the staff down in Abbotsford. All right. Let's let's Rick, I gotta ask. Given how few minutes the likes of Mikhaev and Philip D uh D Giuseppe and and even Garland played oh. in the third period last night. Given the injury to Joshua, given that Pew Suter and Niels Hoaglander have been drafted up to the top six, feels like the need, the potential need for Phil Kessel is uh, more robust today than it was when this news, when he was first spotted at YVR with his Vegas Golden Knights. Um, Bag, what are you hearing? Yeah. What's coming next for the Canucks with Kessel? Okay, uh, Thomas, the Canucks uh, are going to continue to work out Kessel this week, evaluate, 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 um, you know, this whole week, by the end of the week, hopefully, uh, this will always. Uh, this was always going to be uh, Thomas uh, something that took time. They were never going to bring him here after two skates and make a decision. He has got to pass checkpoints on and off the ice, practice, train, skate. Uh, the goal is for him to be NHL game ready. Uh, being told he's on the right track, testing has been positive. It, 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 last time I checked in, uh, no games with Abbotsford Canucks this week, Thomas. Uh, they're not there yet. They're not. Yet there yet to put him in a game but all I've been told is they're going to continue to work him out this week uh, he's got to pass those checkpoints and then uh, hopefully uh, by the end of the week we we know more Rick I've been watching this recent slump I'm not going to call it a skid or anything it's not that dramatic yet but I've been watching this recent slump especially the club's struggles defending the rush although they were much better last night killing penalties they didn't allow a goal against but I thought the Avs penal- uh, power play was able to pressure them at will and and I've sort of wondered to myself does this recent run of form in any way change or alter the equation from the Canucks end in terms of their pursuit or their potential pursuit of Chris Tanev Oh, they they they, they love Tanev. You you heard Besser last week, right? Yeah. 
on a podcast raving about Tandem, calling him like a father figure. He was so, you know, I, I said earlier this year that Quinn Hughes, you know, is is the biggest Chris Tanev fan. Uh, you know, I'm starting to find out it wasn't just Hughes. It, it, there's others in that dressing room that absolutely love Chris Tanev, especially from that year in the bubble when, you know, he he, he took that young core and you know, on and off the ice, he's such an absolute great pro. They, they would, of course, love to land Tanev, uh, uh, Thomas, but if, if the Flames are holding out for a first-round pick, I, I said that right after the Lindholm trade, mm-hmm. and they continue to hold out for a first-round pick. I don't think the Canucks can do that. The preference is not to trade a first-round pick. That's the preference, but you, you made a good point. Uh, what's going on here? The trade deadline's two and a half weeks away. You know, they, they, like, are they going to get antsy and maybe trade a first? The preference is not to. They love Tanev. We all know that, the whole organization, but uh, right now it's a stiff price. I, I don't know if they can do it. But it's interesting that they are. They seem to be pleased five on five at this point. Hey, look, if this continues and it ends up being a five, six, seven game uh, yeah, losing streak. Yeah, that's what I was yeah, thinking. Yeah, a- absolutely. Right now, I think that they're they're thinking this that, and as we talked about earlier, this this stuff's going to happen. You're going to lose three games in a row. Yeah. Yeah. Go through an entire season without losing three games in a row would be absolutely remarkable. Five on five, they've been, they've been pretty good. And again, that Minnesota game was just so strange. You you you, th- you throw it away. But if it continues. I think the acquisition of anyone within reason is possible. Well, and Thomas, quickly on yep. Tanev, uh, the biggest concern, the biggest concern right now is a lot of Western Conference power uh, power teams are in on Tanev. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, like Colorado is in there, uh, Dallas, Dallas is yep. in there, Edmonton's in there. Uh, yeah, so the Canucks really don't want to see that guy end up on a you know a pretty good team in the Western Conference, right? That's another issue that's going on right now with Tanev. Yeah, especially especially Edmonton in my mind because that team is an that's upgrade on it. second par uh, second it. pair RHD. They get an upgrade at second pair right-handed defense. That is a scary scary prospect that's a concern for the rest right of now. the West. Yeah, uh, that's with, a concern for the Canucks right now. You know, the other the other reason that I was thinking about it last night was that first period, right? You see Noah Juleson, I don't know if it was a slash or if he took a shot in the hand, but you could see that he was bracing his stick uh, a little bit oddly in that first period and and struggling on the bench. Still earned the clear, which was absolute warrior stuff from Juleson, uh, especially on the heels of a couple tough games. So I love to see that, but makes me a little nervous when there's another defense, uh, defensive injury. And then you see Zadorov oh. obviously get cut. Um, when he came back, stride was a little yeah. bit short for a few shifts. I wondered if the Avs would uh, try to take him out wide a bit, but he settled in. It seemed like by the end he was unencumbered. But nonetheless, I mean, we, we, Susie's already hurt. You know, last night it feels like this Abbotsford's team's a mess. Yeah, Abbotsford's no Willan and no Hirose. I mean, so many D are hurt down That's there. That's it. And these options get pretty interesting if you if you lose another guy, much less two guys in a period, which, you know, whether it was Meyer Susie in Montreal or what we saw last night, it's always a looming possibility here. Defensive depth. Do you think that's a priority ahead of March 8, Rick? 100%. They're calling on defensemen right now. Thomas, how, you always want to be seven, eight deep in the playoffs, right? Because you know injuries are going to hit. Uh, you definitely can bank on them looking for D right now for sure. Well, I, also, Thomas, uh, I know uh, we'll go back uh, here to the days of Tim Kerr. <laughs> Uh, but 
maybe even a little bit before that. But '82, the Canucks had. Remember Kevin McCarthy? Oh yeah. Oh. Kevin McCarthy get, gets injured. They brought in uh, Neil Andy, Neil Bellin and Andy Schliebner. Andy Schliebner. Yeah. Okay, and they then they make their way to the Stanley Cup final yeah. at '94. Dana Merzen got hurt. They had yeah. Brian Glynn That's right. uh, from yep. Calgary. They acquired him for defensive depth, and he ended up playing a whole lot of games in '94. People forget about that. And the player that we're talking about a lot here, who wore number 18 back in 2011, was Chris Tanev. Yeah. Who ended up being important to them. Keith Ballard couldn't play. They they, they tried and you know in, in the postseason, uh, and, and he was a disappointment that, that season. Chris Tanev comes in, undrafted free agent. That's right. Uh, out, of, out of college. And he fits in just fine. He was signed for, I don't even think he was signed for depth. They thought he was something for the future. He ended up being a great depth piece. He so did. this has precedent there yep. uh, here. And I know they just got Zadorov, but uh, Pat Quinn, I remember him always saying, as we go back in the past again, remember him always, always saying you can't have enough defense. You can't. At the most important time of year. So that from that point of view, nothing would surprise me. Can we, can we, I just want to take this opportunity to remember one of the great lines in the history of Canucks reporting, which was Tony Gallagher's column for the Vancouver province the day after the Kevin McCarthy injury. I'm going to read it to you. I pulled it up while you were speaking because it's so good. Okay. Captain Kevin McCarthy was the Canucks' John F. Kennedy, Gallagher wrote. He was a leader, Catholic, and everyone remembers where they were when he went down. (laughs) (laughs) There's only one person who could write that and get away with it. Tony, Tony Gallagher. Tony Gallagher. Oh, man. Uh, (laughs) McCarthy, of course, was the captain at the time, right? And ended up losing the captaincy because of the run that Stan Stan. Smeag handed the C, um, put the Canucks on. And, of course... When the when the club returned the next season, Smeal remained. A second. How do you remember that? Yeah. and you don't well, I don't remember my, Tim, Tim Kerr. Kerr. I would remember Tim Kerr if he'd played for the Canucks. I know my Canucks history. Anyway, no, that's he not played true. Against yes, it is. Because I'm how telling do you, know something. Tim Kerr, he didn't play for the Canucks. Well, because you guys were alive then. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but M- McCarthy and Smeal, McCarthy and Smeal were roommates when the Canucks decided to replace McCarthy with Smeal as captain, uh, making for some awkward situations. If you, if you talk to Steamer about it, he'll tell you he picked up a lot of tabs that, that first half of the season before McCarthy was dealt. I, I don't remember it being as controversial as Messier Linden. Yeah. But yeah. different times, you know, the, the media was a little more overwhelming, you know, in 94 or probably or, you know mid-90s when Messier was there mm. versus a, a, 82. But, yeah, it must have been uncomfortable. I think it was awkward. Unlike our annual or our weekly hits, gentlemen, which are always a blast. Thanks for doing this. Yes. I'm going to read up yes. on uh, Tim yeah. Kerr. <laughs> Yeah, you do yeah. that. You yeah. do that. Hey, they might be annual after this hit. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, boys. Be well. Okay. Adios. Thanks, Tom. That was the crossover with our pals Donnie and Dolly, giving me a nice history lesson on on the second most efficient shooting cur uh, of the last 50 years in North American pro sports. All right. We're going to be back on the other side. We're going to do the whiteboard. And then we're going to talk to Jason Bukala about all things Canucks. Sarah Nurse joins us at 1.30. You're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Big opinions and good bets. It's the People's Show with Bick Nazar. Be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
welcome back to Canucks Talk. Jason Bukla will be on the line shortly. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Be a champion on the worksite. Find them together online at dleamc.com. I'm coming to you live, of course, from the Kintec studio. Kintec, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, powered by thousands of five-star Google reviews. Sore feet, what are you waiting for? And JanPro, the leaders in commercial cleaning and janitorial. If your workplace demands a clean environment, contact JanPro for a free, no-obligation quote. Visit janpro.ca. All right, now we're going to... Have Books join our program. We'll talk about the Canucks' recent slump. We'll talk some prospects. We're definitely going to talk some Archdeep Baines. I promise you that. Um, Books is going to join us on the Dispatch Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning Hotline. The first call, the only call, Dispatch Plumbing. So here we go to the Dispatch Plumbing, Heating, and Air Conditioning Hotline. Hey, it's my buddy, Books. How are you, bud? Your answer all by yourself, babe, buddy. Yeah. Holding down the fort. All by myself, tripping it. over reeds. Let's go. <laughs> Welcome in, my friend. I, I need your help. Um, no problem. The Canucks needed some help. They needed some reinforcements. Archdeep Baines made his NHL debut last night. Books. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Instead of asking you a straight question, I'm just gonna give you my sense of it really quick. I was really impressed by the defensive details like the intensity that he showed in terms of like something as simple as uh stop starts the the way that he was you know busting his tail to like break uh slam on the brakes stay inside uh, of his check in the defensive zone uh, just the reads the positioning i mean it felt to me like he stood out for doing some of the things that tend to earn a prospect looks and i love to see that from a young player what what did you think last night yeah i think that in a nutshell what you're trying to say is he played the game the right way and sometimes yep. when when players come up from the american league and if they've been on a heater at the minor league level or if they're coming out of junior i don't care where they're coming from anywhere in the world and they're you know they've been scoring at a, a relatively high clip sometimes um the details of the game can be overwhelming um out of the blocks at the nhl level and I would agree with you. I, th- I thought that he's, uh, I thought his detail was, was on point for, you know, the way that he tracked and the way that he played, I call it between the dots, you know, like up and down the ice, like keeping yep. things to the outside, staying on the inside of his man. And I thought he did a really good job that way. Um, I'll double down on it a bit and say that I also like some of his creativity below yeah. the goal line in the offensive zone. Like he would um, shelter a check and then kind of, uh, he made a couple of, small area plays off mm-hmm. the dasher like back around a check and and then back out front to i think it was bluger yes. i think the one play to the uh, net front um so on top of everything else he showed me some creativity there so just over 13 minutes of ice time i thought that he was uh, i thought he complimented the group it's a high leverage game yep they're coming off a tire fire in uh, you know the previous <laughs> uh, the previous episode there which happens sometimes but um you know good for him it was it's a good story too right like it's um, it's cool i mean you know you know we're all fans of the game and uh, these are these are feel good stories and i and i like those too so it was a good night that way one thing that the Canucks will tell you, like Canucks player development, is, you know, he came in and in the dub where he was 
the most prolific playmaker in, in that final 2021-2022 campaign. You know, he had this sort of assortment of like spinning pass moves, right? And and one thing that they recognized and he recognized immediately in in the fall of his first pro season was that in order for that part of his game to translate, he needed to add a lot of functional strength and he needed to add mm-hmm. some foot speed and they assigned him this absolutely rigorous sort of off ice and on ice regimen of extra work and there was an understanding explicitly communicated to him like this is where your effort needs to be and if it leaves you tired in game situations we're fine with that through the first couple months here because this is what you need to do to change your body and hit the pro level and one of the reasons he's become a star pupil um, within Canucks player development is the way that he embraced that the way that he put the work in just as an amateur talent evaluator you know big picture right it's hard to know when you're drafting or scouting or even signing an undrafted free agent whether or not they're going to have that separating work ethic you know when a player has it though how much does that change what they can become it changes everything Mm. because what you get, so that's, you know, that. let me unpack that a little bit because I think it's really important for your listeners to understand. Like when we talk about changing culture, it's not just something that I throw around loosely. So like last summer, uh, several players uh, were challenged by this uh, coaching staff, by the organization in general, mm-hmm. that we had to get better in certain areas. This is how we're going to play as a, as a group. It's going to be this way with the big team. It's going to be like this in player development in the American League. And then by extension, when they come to development camp, by the way, this is the way we expect you to be prepared when you arrive on our doorstep and sign a contract. So when you get you fast forward to a player like last night, so when you open up the conversation, like who would have thought when Bain signs out of Red Deer that, you know, we're gonna be talking about his efficiency, tracking back, you know, and right. keeping his check to the outside and all that stuff because you know that's not immediately what you think of, right, for the MO. Um, the fact that he's bought in and that was kind of as one of his immediate um, thoughts or responsibilities was really progressive. And that's that's a super sign because not everybody like 98 percent of the game, you never even have the puck on your stick. Like 98 percent of the game. If you're if you're a forward or a defenseman, well, I would say a forward defenseman have more touches, but they don't have it. So you better be responsible with everything that you provide because that's how you get staying power at the National Hockey League level. And let me tell you, you hit it right on the head. It's not an exact science when you're developing guys out of the amateur draft. Um, some guys are, you know, you're, they're programmed that way. Like Logan Stankoven just got called up by Dallas. Right. Okay. Like this guy's an easy guy. He, he's a, he should be a poster child for – um, so he's an undersized guy. He's kind of built like a fire hydrant. He's he's super quick to space. He tracks up and down with pace. He's equal part shooter, distributor. But you know what he does? He competes like it's you know his last day in the league, wherever whatever league he's in, whether it be the WHL, Team Canada, World Juniors, American League, and you know hopefully in Dallas in time. Um, so he's a guy that was programmed that way already, and you don't you nurture that. But then there's some other guys that need a kick in the arse, i.e. Owen Tippett. Like when we drafted Tip sure. in Florida, Jancer, when we were both there, you know, we knew it was going to be a little bit of a slow burn with him just because he was a little bit laissez-faire at times. But, you know, he needed a kick, right? And now he's figured it out. And he's in a perfect situation because Torts isn't going to ever let him off the hook that way. <laughs> not that we were, no. not that we were, but he wasn't mature enough to figure it out yet. The, yeah, the... 
the Baines sort of experience, right, and the way that the Canucks are trying to develop players here, um, it's it's a really interesting dynamic because there's a lot that goes into it. Like one thing this team has done, Baines got the you know full NHL ELC, but this team's also bringing in guys like Tristan Nielsen and like Chase Waters and Chad Nychuk and um, Schmeeman. Like, if you have really good WHL scoring stats, this team seems to target you. Often, like, both, both whether it's Baines or whether it's these guys who come in on AHL-only contracts is sort of like a double-A layer of Canucks player development. And then, you know, there, there's the understanding at the AHL level, whether it's with McWard or, or any of those college free agents where the work off the ice matters almost more to us than the on-ice product. And and through this sort of system, the team's also not rolling with like a super high American League payroll the way they did in Abbotsford's first year when they went out and had like Nick Patan and Sheldon Dries and Matt Rempe and just like a ton of guys who cost a lot of money. Um, and now it's sort of producing games for them at the NHL level. When you sort of look at that overall approach, what comes to mind for you? Does does it seem sharp and sustainable in your view? Organizational identity is mm. the first, very first thing that comes to mind for me. There can't be a disconnect between we all want to win in the American League. Like I get that, all right. That we obviously want that to happen, but you know, it's 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 a feeder system. Like we want for these guys to come there. We want them to develop under our watch. We want them to play a certain way. It can't go understate, or we can't understate this either. The fact of the matter is that when you sign a kid to an American League deal straight up, he's basically auditioning, Jancer, as you know, every single night all over the league to earn an NHL deal. Because technically speaking, he, he could be approached, you know, that, that scenario could turn into an NHL deal for, for him with another franchise, right? Like a one-way deal. So there's always that risk. But having said that, if anybody wanted to take the time to take a look at Aberster's roster, to your point, like I don't – so on the big roster right now, we've got um, – I haven't looked at it today, and we had the, you know, the game in Minnesota the other night. But on, by bal- on balance, we have a real positive identity, mostly a plus roster, plus minus-wise. Like we, uh, we play to a, a team identity for the most part, right? So we now know what a Vancouver Canuck looks like, or we're getting closer to it. Go to Abbotsford. Look at the same thing. I don't think, like, in their top 10 scores, I'm just pulling it up right now, like from Baines all the way down to Willanen, who's a defenseman, but some of these numbers are are fantastic. Like, Max Sasson comes out of college hockey. Yeah. He's got 28 points in 39 games. He's a plus seven in his first pro year. Three power play goals. Five game winning goals. So, you know, it's not just Baines is what I'm trying to tell you. There's a culture that's being built here and I really like it. It's positive. And I I would go as far as to say that it's sustainable too, which is really good. So Sasson's a really interesting one because the Canucks are still going to hope to play. uh, I mean, they've got Scott Young here as the director of player personnel. They're still going to try to be aggressive in signing college free agents. But one thing that they're obviously going to be contending with here is they can't give these guys games, right? Like they can't put a guy on a roster. Roster uh, for for three weeks to make sure they land the top college free agent. Like these games are too important. These roster spots are too high leverage. This team's playing for something. And one thing that this team self consciously is going to do is try to explain to their top NCAA targets the Max Sasson route. 
where, you know, unlike McDonough and McWard and Hirose, who came right onto the NHL roster, Sasan went down to the American League and played for Abbotsford on their run in the Calder Cup playoffs last year. And look at it. He's having the most successful second season or first full pro season. Having taken that path, that's something the Canucks are going to sell. Um, do you think that'll work? Do you think that's a compelling pitch? To young players or is the opportunity to debut and earn an NHL NHL paycheck for a couple weeks just too potent well I hope it's not because I think we've really lost control of that and I don't like it I gotta be honest with you like I'm a I'm of the, the frame of mind that it should be earned right and I get it you've had a really good college career or wherever you're coming from I get that but here's here's the thing it's the National Hockey League and so somebody's got to come out for you to go in and if we're a team that's rolling and we want to continue to you know, with our momentum, whatever that looks like come, you know, the end of March when college season for a, a non-NCAA team ends, it, you know, we need you to understand that we have a process here. Now, are you going to get a, a short, you're going to get one year off your deal, you're going to get, you know, a little bit of benefit at the front end of your career? Yeah, sure. But this is a marathon. And if you want to be part of the marathon of success, because that's what it is, and it's hard to win. It's hard to win in the American League. It's hard to win in the National Hockey League. It's really hard, your answer, as you know, in the American League. Like, that's a really, really hard league to play with the, the type of detail that he yeah. saw us playing with. I'm, I'm of the frame of mind, let's go after the right type of athlete who wants to buy into our process over that other guy who might, in the short order, like his floor, uh, his, his entry-level ceiling for some of these guys might be higher than a Sasson, just, just as an example. But over the, over the second year, third year uh, at the pro level, Sasson's floor and going to a ceiling could go way past one of those high-ender, high-leverage NCAA guys who demanded a game early, if you understand what I mean. It happens every year. All of us go shopping for high-end NCAA players. Not too many of them hit. I like this process better. Get in the fold, develop, be part of us, and guess what? We're going to be more loyal to you in the long run as well, and, and that's the process that should work. Let's talk about the Canucks' struggles of late. So I, I just want to tell you this. So they've lost three in a row, but to me, the story isn't three in a row losses, whatever. It's 500 since the All-Star break, 4-4-1. Four, four, and one. And in that span, Books, they're plus six, five on five. Their five on five game is still sharp. In fact, it's it's as good as it's been all year. Nine shorthanded goals against. Three goals for on the power play, three goals against. So zero goal differential on the power play. This is a special team's slump, more than it is a, a team slump at the moment. Does that match what you're seeing from the Canucks of late? Yeah, I mean, for me personally in this segment, it's been the details. It's some of the small yeah. details. And I, I would go as, like, in, in useless, like, dumb penalties. Like, we can all sit here and say, well, the official this, the official that. But let's, let's, get, let's get something straight here. Like, even last night, like, Miller's uh, penalty where Johnson sells it in, what was that, second period, whatever that was. Yeah. Um, you know, he's got one hand on his stick. Yeah. He's got it up around the guy's head. You know, whatever. And how many times a, a night do we see some guys snap their head back and it's a call, right? Like, the, the ref on the weak side, he's, all he sees is a stick up. and it's a. So what I'm trying to say to you is that I find it to be, like, when you talk about special teams and, you know, they play with more structure, more detail five-on-five five right now. I'm still okay with that. I, I, 
you know, this segment's just been okay. Let's not let's not sugarcoat it. But overall, the the overall detail in every facet of the game, um, it's fallen off for a stretch here. And um, am I concerned in the big picture? No, because I think it's an opportunity to um, not look in the mirror and be so fond of what you see looking back. Right. Like you got to take you got to take it in stride. And it's a coaching moment. Like this is a teaching opportunity, and the coaches will do that. So. Um, it was bound to happen, right? Like everything that we touched turned to gold for an extended period of time. Things haven't gone well for a little bit. Let's accept the challenge. Let's do something about it. Let's move on. But uh, I'm a hundred percent with you. But for me, it's been the details. Like it might be that, you know, I stop moving my feet for a sec. So I take a stupid stick pedal, you know, like a trip or a hook or just something lazy because I'm not there on time. Um, we got to get back to it. So the, snapbacks the head snaps what i mean the miller thing the miller call in particular i think it stands out to canucks fans as being a soft call and for me it's one where i i think it was an infraction i just don't think it was high sticking <laughs> like, i think i think he grabbed the guy's face i don't think it was the stick um but the fact is here is like people talk about especially in a market like Vancouver where we haven't had a team that had a target on their backs in a long time. People talk about a team that has a target on their backs as a concept without understanding what it means, but what it means is teams are coming in every night to frustrate you, to annoy you, to pick at your weaknesses as ruthlessly as possible because these are NHL players and probing weakness is what they're best at. And for the Canucks, guess what that weakness is? It's the penalty kill. Like, it's always going to be the penalty kill with this group. And what does that mean? Well, that means teams want to take penalties because if they take penalties, they'll get makeup calls, they'll get power plays. They want the game to be decided in the muck and and on special teams. That's how teams are playing the Canucks. Like, it's frustrating to watch, but in some ways it's kind of a compliment, right? Listen, I got, the first thing out of the box here, I have to say, because I'm, I'm a little bit old school, like, I hate that the fact that a large human like Jack Johnson does that in the <laughs> yeah. first place. Like, that drives me crazy. Fair that, enough. That's the first thing I got to say. Like, come on, let's man up. Second thing I'll say <laughs> is that is that in a month and a half from now, that's not called. Okay, mm. that that isn't called. That that is, And that's where it's perplexing, isn't it, right? Like, because we, you and I both know that when the game gets below the goal line in the playoffs and it's that – as you call it, mucking or that that extra pushback in the trenches, you know, they're going to allow these guys, men, it's going to be man-on-man, or they're going to let them battle a little bit more, right? They're going to extend it a little bit. Maybe not for the first couple of games of the first round, but generally speaking, you know, it's a war of attrition and they let them battle. But having said all of that, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that whole uh, analogy, which is, you know, now we have a target on our back. It's absolutely 100% factual. So, you know, the area of weakness that we can uh, expose is is still the penalty killing in the big picture. And by the way, we need to be very disciplined because Vancouver's power play, you know, it can, it can win games on its own if if required. Right. So, um, yeah, that's, that's something that's, that's all part of the evolution of this season. Like that's, you know, don't anybody be, you know, getting there too high or too low here. You guys are going to be challenged over the next three, four weeks in a variety of ways. And these are the, these are the little tests that are going to happen before playoffs. And I kind of seen Rick talk and allude to it a little bit that we have to, we have to understand how to react or understand how to better prepare in certain situations. And they'll do that. But it's still a process here. Like, this has been a hell of a year, but there's still some learning that's got to go on for the group in these high-leverage situations. I didn't think they played poorly last night. As a matter of fact, I yeah, thought it mirrored kind of a 
playoff game. To be honest with you, like I didn't see a five on five, the McKinnons of the world and the McCars of the world and the Rantons of the world taking over the game against no. the Vancouver Canucks. I didn't see that. Like I thought it was a, I thought it was a straight up even game. And I would tell you this: that over seven games, I'll take our goaltending in Vancouver over their goaltending in Colorado all day. Now, Georgiev made some big saves in the third, but you know I still like our guy better. I'm just going to say that. So there's a lot of positives to take out of last night, but we're going through a few little hiccups here and there, and I think it's part of the process and it's good so now the challenge is going to be how do they react how do they get back to doing what they do well with better focus and um, you got the coaching staff behind that bench that'll get it done for you Georgiev's so interesting to me by the way because I think he's one of the best in the league down low like if you're attacking them down low he is elite 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 but if you're able to get chances from that mid-range you know like um I mean, we all know those are the most dangerous chances anyway. But those mid-range chances, I think that's where he's gettable. And that's where the Canucks are, like, at their best. Now, the Avs know this. They're trying to ta- they're trying to filter you to the net front where he can take care of things. But it, it didn't feel like the Canucks were able to challenge Georgiev from where he's vulnerable. And instead, we're sort of settling for, and not settling for, I mean, they're good chances. But we're really generating chances in the area where he's most likely to be on point. Did you get that sense last night? Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, uh, the scout in me, um, you're bang on. So when I watch a a goaltender like Georgia play, like when you see him down in his crease, um, even when it looks like. Well, he fronts it still, doesn't he? Like, you know, some goalies will get like down and their pad might be on the ice. Like Mm. uh, they might be on one knee or or they might be um, paddled down and, and they lose all their balance and, you know, they're relying on their blocker and their paddle to make a save around the crease. So last night, especially around those net front battles, his pads were on point. Like, you guys, you had chances, but you were basically blasting him into his pads right. in, in short range. You know, like there was nothing there. Um, I still think that, you know, the, the thing with him is that, uh, you know, his season has been really topsy-turvy. And, and if I can get that guy moving around a lot or early in the game, even from the outside. And what I mean by that is if your zone entry can go from right to left and you can, you can rip a puck from the flank, um, he can be exposed up high. Like he really can. And, um, you know, he gets, he gets a little awkward sometimes, but when the battle ensues right around his crease between the hash marks and stuff like that, he fronts it really well. So he's kind of a, he's a little bit of an anomaly shocker. Mm. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these goalies from Europe, they are like that. Yeah. Um, but timely saves last night. Give him credit. Yeah, he played well. Uh, so, Books in captioning this recent Canucks slump, like the focus for me at this point is always to try and stay focused on what matters. And, and it can be difficult at this time of year where, you know, a team like the Canucks appear to have such a significant lead, um, especially in their own division. And yet, you know, I look at this Oilers team that's been – streaking at an unholy clip since Knobloch took over, right? They're, I think, 30-9, and nine, which is outrageous. Yeah, it's crazy. A 7-6-9 point percentage that's a 125-point pace. And I sort of see a team that could, if they close, you know, I mean, they're not going to close like that, but if they close at a 700-point percentage clip, they're going to get to 109 points. Uh, if the Canucks are going to beat that, like if they're going to be comfortably ahead of them at the end of the year, they need 30 points from their remaining, or sorry, 
uh, yeah, th- 30 points from their remaining 24 games, which, you mm-hmm. know, it's not outrageous, but it's 103-point pace. It's a 6-2-5 um, point percentage. Like, this isn't a team that can afford to be 500 over their next nine games the way they like they could afford to be 500 over the last their last nine games it's not a problem but it but it will be if that stretch becomes like 18 games of 500 hockey um how do you sort of view the stakes for the canucks over the balance so first thing i'm gonna say is that i'm 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 banking on my next game in the segment so we're four four and one in our last night right that's that's what we are in Mm -hmm. our last night so I need to win the segment. So that's my first goal. Like small, right. small targets, not big pictures, small targets. Let's win the segment. Let's let's adjust with a brand new one after that. Let's take stock of what we did well, what we needed to improve on. And the things are pretty obvious, right? So that's the good news. Yep. Like things are obvious coming out of this segment. Power Boom. play penalty that kill. First. Yeah. So let's just, let's move on. Let's, let's take a look at that. Let's start fresh with a new mindset. Let's get after it. The second thing I'm going to say is that, First place is a is in in my like my first reaction is it's a nice to have not a need to have and I don't think it's going to be because of us slumping down the stretch as much as it is that you cannot do anything about what the Edmonton Oilers are doing like that's that's a ridiculous pace of of winning right so we can't control that but what we can't control is getting to wherever we want to go in these segments now if I finish first. I absolutely love my my matchup in the first round way better than if I finish second. There's a, there's absolutely no question about that. You know that. I know that. Okay, so it's fine. Um, but I don't see this team uh, lacking the type of pride that it's going to take down the stretch to get this done. I've learned a lot about them. I wasn't buying the stock necessarily early on. And then, you know, you just keep rolling and rolling. And you see some positives here, there, and everywhere. I'm not at the stage. Let's win this segment, and then I'm going to bank it, and then I'm going to be, boom, fresh start. Let's let's push right to the end here. Get through the trade deadline because that stresses the group out. Mm. Let's get through that and then uh, and then see where we're at. But Edmonton's also going to hit a little bit of a wall here. Like, don't, don't forget, like in their last five games, Stuart Skinner, for example, is two and three answer and his uh, goals against is you know in the five game segment has ballooned closer to three and his save percentage has come down to 882 so like they're going to have it happen to them somewhere in there as well and uh, that's just a lot of averages as the games get harder and harder books Thank you so much for joining us. Always a blast, my dude. Um, we'll have you on next week. Jamie will be back, and it'll be a much smoother transition into the interview, but also uh, not as good a one-on-one conversation. So, <laughs> oh, this has been this Trade has been offs. awesome. I really enjoy. I really enjoy spending the time with the answers. So, thanks a lot for having me on. Likewise, bud. We'll we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Books. Bye bye. That was Jason Bukla on Archdeep Baines' debut, player development, organizational identity, and the like. We're going to be back on the other side with Sarah Nurse. You're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk. I'm your host, Thomas Drance. One more segment. We're going to change gears here a little bit and chat with PWHL star Sarah Nurse about an excellent new initiative that she's got going on and the success of that new league. First... Canucks Talk, of course, is brought to you by JanPro, the leaders in commercial cleaning and janitorial. If your workplace demands a clean environment, contact JanPro for a free, no-obligation quote. Visit JanPro.com. 
dot ca that's j-a-n-p-r-o dot ca all right we go now to the dispatch plumbing heating and air conditioning hotline where we are proud and very excited to be joined by sarah nurse sarah how are you and thanks for joining us today Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? Doing exceptionally well. Uh, very excited to talk to you. So I, I want to start by just asking you about this new initiative that you've got going on, Nursey Nights, um, a, a way to introduce young girls to hockey and make the game a more inclusive space. W- what do you want to tell our audience about this initiative? Yeah, well, it has a name now. It's, uh, it's oh. called Nursey Night, but yeah. um, it, it really started out with me wanting to just bring some young girls uh, to the game so that they could experience professional women's hockey. And as we you know, spoke more about it, uh, we brought in Black Girl Hockey Club Canada. Mm-hmm. My league wanted to get on board, and then uh, Rogers wanted to partner with us as well. And so uh, we were able to bring 20 young girls to our last game at Scotiabank Arena. Uh, they were presented with a $50,000 check from Rogers for you know funding and programming with Black Girl Hockey Club Canada. And so throughout this season, uh, once or twice a month, we're going to have girls out at our games here in Toronto and be able to provide them with that experience. Uh, Meet me after the game. And then at the end of the season, we're going to do a nice Zoom call with them and just chat about hockey and life and and really whatever they want. So I'm I'm curious to ask you about the partnership with Black Girl Hockey Club. And, and for those of uh, listening who, who may not know, it's a nonprofit organization uh, focuses on making hockey more inclusive, uh, not only for black girls, but also for their families and allies. Um, and they've done great work in partnership with the NHL and in partnership with the PHWA, I mean, I mean across the board. But what, what I'm curious about, Sarah, is, you know, it seems like you could have started your own foundation here Um to, to sort of grow your, your effort to bring a couple fans to, to every game. And, and instead, it seems like you wanted to, you know, uh, sort of like uplift or, or lend additional heft, uh, use your sort of lend your platform uh, to help this this group. Why was that important to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I get asked about that all the time, actually. But I think that there are so many amazing people and organizations that are already out here doing some incredible work. Um, I've been able to witness firsthand the work that Black Girl Hockey Club has done um, on the American side for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And they obviously opened up here in Canada about a year or two ago. And so I, I just think that, you know, their network, the initiatives and programming that they already r- run um, is something that resonated with me. Obviously, their executive director, Soraya Tinker, um, is a good friend of mine as well. And mm-hmm. so to be able to partner with an organization that's already doing some pretty amazing things uh, really was a no-brainer I want to ask you about the game you played in last week the the battle on Bay Street um, over 19,000 fans in attendance it set the attendance record for women's ice hockey what was that atmosphere like what do you think it says about the demand for high-level yeah. professional women's hockey in this country it was pretty uh, electric in there and mm. I haven't heard Scotiabank Arena sound like that uh, in a very <laughs> long time and it was it was pretty cool just to be a part of. Uh, it felt like every single time somebody stepped on the ice like the cheers were absolutely huge. You could barely hear anything in there. Um, there were so many young girls and boys who were there to really witness history and so to be able to have to be a part of the, you know, most, what is it, the record-breaking attendance in that game Mm -hmm. was so special, something that I'll definitely remember forever. Um, But it just speaks to 
the demand and, and where we're at with uh, women's hockey right now and just how special and important this moment is. Yeah, the old field of dreams uh, rule. If you build it, they will come. Uh, they've Absolutely. come to support the PWHL in the markets it's operating in to this point. Um, has anything surprised you to this point about the start of this league? I think just the momentum that mm. our league has gotten. Um, I was so optimistic going into the into the season. Um, I have full belief in our, our players and, and our staff and everything that has gone into this. But uh, just from like a marketing perspective, it feels like everybody's talking about us. Um, I remember like our, our first game was watched by like 2.9 million people in Canada. Mm-hmm. And like, those are like Olympic numbers. Right. And so just the amount of buzz that we've created um, within the sports industry has been like monumental. And so to see so many different people from different walks of life, being able to play professional hockey, um, you know, I play with Natalie Spooner. She's a mom, and she's able to balance being a mom to her son, but also be a professional hockey player. So I just think that we've been able to provide so many opportunities that women have never had before. So Natalie's been on fire, right? Um, yeah. Seems like your teammate Kristen Campbell's uh, got some of that swagger back, and you guys have kind of righted the ship, uh, winning five of the last six, right? After after a bit of a slow start, what what's been clicking? that maybe wasn't for your side earlier in the season? You know what? It's so funny because, like, as a hockey player, you think that just the bounces aren't going your way. And there were some games in Mm. in the first part of that season where we were like, man, we just need a bounce to go our way. It felt like whenever the highlights were playing, they were against us, somebody scoring on us. And so in the past six games, we've just really cleaned up things that were in our control. Um, You know, we've had one or two focuses going into each game, and we wanted to execute that. And we wanted to make sure that we are the best at that. Um, to set ourselves up for success. And so I think that right now we're a team who's obviously gone through some adversity, and I don't think a lot of teams have had to go through that. Um, We played in some pretty big games that our emotions are very high. Like, we were a part of the first ever PWHL game. We were part of that record-breaking crowd the other night. And so I think us being able to manage emotions and play a full 60 minutes, um, we've really been set up for some success, and and hopefully as the season continues to go on, we're going to keep rolling. Now... I know you don't have the answer to this, but tongue in cheek, I got to ask it. When, when am I? When am I going to be covering a, P, a PWHL game in Vancouver? Here, come on. I, I need a team <laughs> I in Vancouver. I would love it. I would love it. We've had a lot of interest from uh, the West Coast, and mm-hmm. so there have been so many markets um, up and down the West Coast who who want professional women's hockey. And so, hopefully, in the next few years, we'll see some expansion. Um, and if not, maybe some neutral site games. Uh, yeah, let's we have go. Some coming up in in Pittsburgh and Detroit, I believe. So. Maybe we can get one uh, out in Vancouver. Yeah, we need to dip the uh, old toe in the water here because I'm, I'm, exactly. I'm guarantee you the demand for hockey in this market uh, insatiable as always. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us and taking the time uh, to share some insight on this first PHW, uh, PWHL season, a historic season, and also uh, the initiative you've sort of led here um, to, to create more access to games. Amazing. Thank you so much. That's Sarah Nurse, Canadian Olympic gold medalist, PWHL star for PWHL Toronto. Uh, The franchises in the PWHL, uh, as yet unnamed, but the quality of the hockey, if you're not paying attention to it, through the roof. Honestly, especially if you're uh, like an old school hockey fan, I I find the game is just an extraordinary extraordinary level. It's been a ton of fun to watch. All right. We'll get back to Canucks talk here, heavy Canucks talk. And I want to start with a bit of a deep dive on the power play. So 
the Canucks power play fueled hashtag the start, right? This team's first six weeks of the year and the success that they had right out of the gate, the two primary engines that drove it were power play one, which was picking its teeth most nights with, with opposing penalty kills, and Thatcher Demko. Casey DeSmith, too. Goaltending. Which was through the roof good. In about mid-November, the power play sort of started to scuffle relative to the elite standard that it set in the first six weeks, but was still potent most nights. Like, was still pretty good for about a six-week stretch. It's just that the team became a little more reliant on, like, depth forward scoring, right? (laughs) All of a sudden, you had this sort of stretch of games where it was, like, the team's robust defensive play, and and then the Connor Garland line got cooking, and that sort of carried the Canucks through, you know, December and, and in early January where they stayed hot. Then we had that electric week of the lotto line, Right. Um, And then, you know, post all-star break, this team scuffled a bit and post all-star break. We've seen the Canucks start to bleed some shorthanded goals against, especially early on after the break and struggle enormously to score. I mean, three goals scored in nine games since the all-star break ended. Now, it's interesting because from an underlying profile perspective, when I look at the rate at which the Canucks are generating zone time, shot attempts, scoring chances, shots for, it's pretty consistent. Like the the club's underlying form, PP1's underlying form is basically unchanged. They're still generating a good level of shots. They're still generating scoring chances at a rate pretty consistent with what they were managing before. What's changed is the, well, the goals. The club was shooting with their first unit on the ice, something around 19%, five on four. Now, that's a high number, but given the quality of Vancouver's finishers, uh, given the fact that teams tend to be able to sustain a higher-than-average shooting clip uh, on the power play year over year, that wasn't something I looked at as like a, a you know red-flashing-light regression candidate. It was something that I sort of looked at and thought, uh, you know, uh, uh, this team could shoot 20% over the course of the year five on four. They've got Patterson's one-timer. They've got, you know, JT Miller with the game on his, on a string. They've got Quinn Hughes with improved sort of finishing ability. You've got Elias Lindholm now at the net front. You've got Brock Besser opportunistically, you know, shifting in and out uh, of this movement power play. But, but things have changed. I mean, it's been converting, first units converted on something like 6% of their shots uh, since the All-Star break. And, and as a result, their goals for clip has is, is been cut in half. I mean, they're just not scoring the way that they were. They're not a potent force. And, and in games like the one last night, really tight checking games where both teams are playing solid, responsible five-on-five hockey, you need your power play to be a difference maker. You need it to be something that can eliminate the fact that you had a tough bounce go against you early in the third period that, you know, can pad a lead uh, should you get it. That that That's not happening for Vancouver at the moment, and, and a lot of it is PP1. Now, looking sort of under the hood, you see very little fall-off between what we saw previously and, and what we're seeing of late. However, where those shots are coming from has changed massively, okay? Since... Acquiring Elias Lindholm, the Canucks have changed their alignment. We're, we're very used to seeing the Canucks with Quinn Hughes, JT Miller on his downhill side at that left flank, and then Elias Pettersson on his one-timer side at the right flank as sort of the three men up high with, you know, it's been an alternating, a rotating cast to some extent, but for most of the year, Kuzmenko down low, Besser in, in the 
bumper spot in the middle. Since Lindholm was acquired, we've sort of seen Lindholm live at the net front with Miller at the bumper spot and Besser, Pedersen, and Hughes up high. Now, the bumper spot is a, a bad name for the guy who plays in the middle of a power play. Um, I remember talking to Adam Oates, who basically popularized the 1-3-1, one, one, and, and in his mind, the, the guy in the middle should be called, like, the cheese. Like, he's he's the primary weapon. And, and I remember talking to JT Miller about it, and Miller echoed the exact same, like, I don't think he should be called the bumper guy. He's a weapon. Well, when you make Miller a weapon, guess what? you're going to get you're going to get shots and JT Miller's shot rate has exploded like more than doubled he was averaging about 10 shots 11 shots an hour um when he was playing at mostly on that downhill side since moving him into the bumper that number's gone to 27 right his shot attempt rate has also exploded as you'd expect around the top of Vancouver's power play formation however Pedersen's shot rate has cratered Besser's shot rate has cratered and Quinn Hughes's shot rate has cratered. So as much as we're talking about perimeter play being an issue for the Canucks power play, the the, the fact is, is that it's really the perimeter attacking players who are shooting less frequently. Like Lindholm's shooting at a higher clip than Kuzmenko was for most of the season. Miller's shot rate has exploded. It's way higher than what Besser's was when he was occupying the bumper spot. So it's not really an internal attacking thing, the, the the Canucks are actually getting a higher proportion of shots from players who play on the interior than they are from players who get play on the exterior. Now, the shot rate thing, though, needs to be unpacked further because while Besser and Patterson and Hughes are getting fewer shots on goal post-All-Star break, their, their shot attempt rate is in Pedersen and Besser's case anyway, in terms of the flankers, it's actually higher. They're shooting more. It's just too many of those shots are getting blocked. Now, Quinn Hughes is actually attempting fewer shots post-All-Star break, but but the, the degree to which his shots are also getting blocked is greater than the drop-off in his shot attempt rate. The question that I sort of have here, and this has been a hobby horse of mine, I know it's become like a, a more popular local talking point over the course of the past 48 hours, but for me, as our regular listeners will know, this has been like a, a consistent question that I've had. For me, my question is this, how much of Besser and Pedersen and Hughes having so many of their shots blocked is a direct result of the fact that fewer of those shots are being set up by JT Miller right, who is not just this team's best five-on-four playmaker, but one of the best five-on-four playmakers in the league. I mean, McDavid, Kucherov, Miller, that's kind of the company. You want to throw Miko Rantanen in there, I won't I won't debate you too much, but it's like that's, that's the Mount Rushmore. That's the Mount Rushmore of power play playmakers in this league. And when you make Miller a shooter, he's, he's naturally going to be facilitating fewer shots. So, for example, you're getting fewer Quinn Hughes point shots that come off that JT Miller fake wrist shot drop pass, right? You're getting fewer, um, you know, Brock Besser shots where he's either sort of the second layer net front guy cleaning up garbage or, uh, you know, popping out and getting those quick passes from JT Miller or, or Elias Lindholm. Um, you know, you're getting fewer cross-seam passes that Miller finds to Patterson. And I, I wonder, you know, is the fact that Miller's shot rate has exploded like this optimal for the Canucks power play? All of that said, I, I, I do fundamentally think there's a real chance that this is just an adjustment phase. 
that this is just an adjustment phase and that as they get comfortable and as they figure it out, they could be just as potent as they were in the first six weeks of the season. However, I do wonder if Miller's positioning five on four at the moment, if the fact that he's used less of a facilitator right now is really optimal given the skill sets at play. That, that, that's my concern here uh, when I sort of deep dive in to what we're seeing from the Canucks power play. Um, the overall, you know, as we're, as I'm sort of hearing the, uh, t- or I'm reading the texts coming in, uh, you're forgetting to mention, texts one unsigned texter, that the Canucks haven't had the power play practice time needed, uh, but they will with so many home games coming. And I think that's fair. I think it's fair to note that the Canucks will have a more favorable practice schedule coming up shortly. Although that first week with Lindholm, I mean, they had two practices before the Carolina game. They practiced in Detroit following the Boston game. Um, you know, they practiced in Vancouver. I mean, they've had four practices in the last at least four practices. They've had five practices in the last like three, two, three weeks. That's about an average amount for this time of year, uh, especially with the two immediate practices. I, I do think it's going to take some time, and I do think it's fair to note that. I, I, I myself think we need to give this alignment a little more time before I completely write it off. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's worth noting, but I do think there could well be more going on, especially with how frequently this team's struggling right now, five on four to get shots through. Um, do you think Tockett would call this a movement power play? Asks another. And I would say no. I would say no. I, in fact, I think that's why they switched alignment. I think that's why Tockett went about trying to fix something that wasn't broke. Like, I think he moved Miller to the middle of the formation in part to try and stimulate additional movement like when you see Pedersen get moved to the net front for a game or two again I think it's to try and make those guys naturally go out to the flanks like to naturally move about the I don't think there's nearly enough movement for what talk it wants overall and I actually think that's why he's still tinkering changing up positioning overall so you know I do think the I do think the overall lack of movement is actually behind some of what we're seeing here. Like, I, I think that's what talk it's looking for more of from Vancouver. I want to add one other element here. Shocker, Canucks haven't got a goal from power play two since the all-star break. And look, power play two doesn't play a lot, but you saw late on the final Canucks opportunity the first unit spends the whole two minutes out there, and by the end of it, JT Miller is so tired, Sam Girard makes a great read and wins a one-on-one battle to sort of kill the final possession, right? At the end of the day, your power play will go as far as your first unit takes you. No mistake about it. Our focus should be there. But the Canucks have had next to nothing from their second power play unit over the course of the season. Like, it, it really, they really have not had enough. Now, you don't need a lot. You don't expect a lot. But you do want some complementary offense. You at least want to be able, in a situation like the Canucks found themselves in last night, to throw your second unit on and at least like, at least have like an energetic ability to get a point shot or two through. Hope for a bounce. You know, you, you need a little bit more than the Canucks are getting. Not not a lot more because again, second power play units around the league they don't do much typically. 
right? This is a fir- this is a PP one league at this point. But you know, you you look at it like Connor Garland, who's been absolutely never promoted to PP one. I think he spent one game there all season long. Uh, he's been on the ice for three power play goals all season. Fifty eight games, three power play goals. Like that's it. That's what the Canucks have got on the power play um, from PP two. That's not going to cut it. You know, like you need a little bit more. You at least need to be able to put them out for 30 seconds at the end of a of a late power play and trust that they're going to give you some kind of threat so that your best players aren't, you know, too tired to functionally run the power play and too tired to come on and like press with the empty net. I mean, the Cole penalty which was a soft penalty, by the way, and talk it was clearly furious about it post game. But the cold penalty aside, like when you're trailing by one in Denver at elevation, playing the second leg of a back to back, guess what? You need Miller, Pedersen, Hughes, Besser to play something like four of the past five minutes. You can sort of help them out with a timeout, right? You can help them out with some stoppages. You hope that you get some icings from the other team. But like, if you're going to press like that and you have a late power play, those guys are going to need to play just an outrageous haul of minutes. And that's extraordinarily demanding. And if your power play unit can't give them that breather so that they can come right back out and attack six on five uh, and at least threaten, at least credibly threaten, you're in trouble. To me, this is sort of one of the Phil Kessel spots that I think he could help in, right? Kessel had nine power play points for Vegas despite playing in a depth role last year. You know, there's a world at least where he can spell Ilya Mikheyev, um, you know, for whom things have been extraordinarily quiet over the course of the season. I mean, he's logged 66 minutes on the power play this year. Mikheyev has Canucks have one goal in those minutes. I mean, that's, that's not going to cut it. That's, that's really tough. So, uh, you know, don't understate the PP two thing here either you, between Hoaglander, Horonic, maybe you're going to add Kessel to the mix, like Garland, there should be enough skill to at least put cobble together a second unit that can, that can press a bit. And the fact that the Canucks don't have that, like I thought it cost them last night. I, I thought, Obviously, PP1 is is the most responsible unit for the success or failure of this team's form with the man advantage, but they need a little more. They just need a little more push, a little more reliability, a, a little more of a threat from PP2, if only for moments like last night where you're pressing, you get a late power play opportunity, and man, it would help if you could have 30 seconds where you can at least reliably generate a scoring chance or, or a good shot or a point shot that could get tipped uh, from your second power play unit. It just doesn't feel like that unit has that tr- level of trust at the moment. And, and that's sort of a problem. I, in fact, it's more than sort of a problem. It's an actual problem. All right, that's going to do it for our solo edition of Canucks Talk today. Josh Elliott Wolf will be back tomorrow. I'm going to hit the road. I'm going to drive down the I-5 and head to Seattle for this game uh, between the Canucks and the Kraken tonight. So I'll be remote the next two days, but it'll be fun. Thanks for listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.